Hello, my fellow Americans, which is just a pet name for the audience. You do not have to be an actual American to listen, nor do you have to be an actual American if you don't want to be. But you can be an actual American if you want to be. Anyways, my name is Duncan, and this is Better Than Washington, the, I suppose now monthly, podcast where we review presidents in a comparison-based context. Sorry I wasn't able to keep my same schedule for the Washington presidency episodes, but I'm just making do with what I can while I can. Anyways, we'll see who was good, who was bad, and which president was basically Norm from Cheers. Because, I mean, you remember Norm, but do you remember who played Norm? I don't think so. Today, we're wrapping up our discussion of the first year of the John Adams presidency, which ran from March 4th, 1979 to March 4th, 1798. I said 1970 instead of 1790, didn't I? Let's try that again. From March 4th, 1797 to March 4th, 1798. We will figure out the score for the year in total for Adams, and that will tell us if he, at least at first, was better than Washington. The next score to discuss is civil rights. This was the score that really dragged down Washington, and that was even after I went out of my way to not score him an automatic worst score possible for being somebody who owned slaves. Like, I can't stress how unfairly kind that is to any of the presidents we're discussing in this podcast that we're not automatically docking them for owning slaves and participating in the slave trade. That should be an automatic disqualification, but frankly, that would also lead to a very boring podcast, so I'm sorry I'm choosing entertainment over the most factual interpretation of a civil rights score. But now you know that, and hopefully you can carry that with you, that a lot of these people were not good people and supported really not cool things, both privately and publicly. But Adams was not somebody who supported the slave trade, which should make him a shoo-in for a high civil rights score, right? Right? My notes are disagreeing with me. Um, yeah, probably not. In future years, we're going to see how the bureaucrat with a chip on his shoulder does some things that are not very great for civil rights. But at least at first, we haven't hit that point. So let's see how the first year turned out for John Adams Jr. On February 14th, 1798, the Supreme Court, which he didn't get to choose yet, but still technically under his presidency, made the decision on a case called Hollingsworth v. Virginia. The case clarified a critical component of the Constitution, and the fact that Adams did not try to interfere with that, despite technically putting a limit on his powers as president, is somewhat remarkable, especially considering his later track record with presidential power. Hollingsworth v. Virginia was sort of a follow-up to an earlier case we discussed during the Washington season, which was Chisholm v. Georgia. Chisholm v. Georgia was a case where Gosh, I can't even remember because I'm talking about a different president now. Oh, gosh. The outcome of Chisholm v. Georgia, in a nutshell, was going to allow somebody who was a citizen of the state of Virginia to sue the state of Georgia for, I think it was, American Revolution debts. And the Supreme Court had effectively ruled at the time in favor of the person from Virginia, thereby stating effectively that states could be sued by people who didn't live in those states. But then the 11th Amendment was passed between now and back then, 
and the 11th Amendment explicitly clarified that states could only be sued by their own residents. So Georgia would still be accountable for any mistreatment it did of its citizens, at least on paper. But Georgia could not be sued by any rando from any other state who claimed some kind of injustice dealt to them by the state of Georgia. So, like, hypothetically, if one state wanted to sue somebody for pursuing medical care that they should have a natural right to, and they had that care in a state that would actually allow them to do that, the state or the individuals of state one could not sue state two. Because of that, there was now the concern that the 11th Amendment was passed erroneously, that somehow it violated some form of necessary process to become part of the Constitution, at least according to one Levi Hollingsworth. See, Levi Hollingsworth just so happened to be a Pennsylvania merchant who had been owing shares in a land speculation company, that old chestnut, and... He was essentially the human stand-in for the land company he speculated in that had a claim against the lands held within Virginia. So basically at the time, West Virginia didn't exist yet. It was all just Virginia. And this land company had some kind of claim against those lands that the state of Virginia was not honoring. And they were basically using the excuse of, well, you're a Pennsylvania company and we're a Virginia state, so we don't have to do any of this. So Levi Hollingsworth was essentially their stand-in at the court hearing, and Hollingsworth's only real defense, since this new law existed, saying he couldn't pursue his lawsuit anymore, that somehow the new lawsuit should be null and void. His response was that it could not have passed, the 11th Amendment that is, because the new president did not get a chance to review it. It was technically ratified after Adams took office. So even though George Washington would have been aware of it, hypothetically at least, Adams would not have been, ignoring the fact that Adams was vice president and therefore part of the Senate that voted for it. So with the persuasive and frankly accurate arguments of Attorney General Charles Lee, the United States Supreme Court chose unanimously that, no, the 11th Amendment was passed by the book as outlined by the Constitution. It is therefore a legitimate constitutional amendment and should be honored going forward. In other words, the president absolutely has no role in the constitutional amendment process. Whenever you want to write an amendment, you can't just then throw it to the president and hope it gets vetoed. The states overwhelmingly support it, therefore the states overwhelmingly pass it. And like I said at the beginning of this section, that is a major victory for civil rights because if the majority of the American population chooses something to be a good thing and demands that thing should become forever protected in constitutional law, then at least hypothetically their legislators should be able to pursue that law for them and the major overwhelming majority will of the states and their populations would then push that through, and you wouldn't just have one angry, grumpy man to repeal it. The fact that John Adams chose not to be a petulant child about this and chose not to try to convince his attorney general to basically, in some way, shape, or form, lose the case implies that Adams, at least at this point in time, agrees that there should be at least this one limit on presidential power, and every limit counts. 
So we can knock this as a point of goodness for Adam's views on civil rights. Again, at least for now, I still have this ominous foreshadowing going on telling me that the civil rights aspect of the Adams presidency is not going to be the shining beacon we hoped it would. But then again, it's probably unfair to have ever assumed that Adams would be a shining beacon of civil rights because even though he definitely was not participating in the slave trade, he was still a victim of the culture he was raised in, and therefore had to perpetuate some of the horrible, awful injustice that that culture considered to be everyday normality. Sexism, racism, even despite not being a slave owner, and anti-religious sentiments for anybody who wasn't his brand of Christianity. And more closely to home, that also includes homophobia. Two warnings are necessary before we continue this conversation. The first warning, of course, is the fact that we're now going to be discussing homophobia, specifically the type of homophobia that may cause a father to disown and disenfranchise their own children. So if a discussion about this kind of homophobia is specifically triggering for you and would basically turn this podcast into something that is no longer a fun learning experience, I strongly recommend that you either end the episode now or skip ahead to a time code I will try to provide in the show notes below. The other warning I have to give before telling this story is that there is a very real possibility that the conclusions I'm drawing are inaccurate. See, whenever you try to discuss history in which you try to identify somebody within that historical story as being a member of the LGBTQIA community, the hard part is that because of the violent persecution that community has suffered throughout a lot of history, those members of the community had to hide the fact they belonged to that community. Thus, we can only speculate about who was actually gay, lesbian, trans, what have you, versus somebody who was only alleged to be that, barring some notable brave exceptions, of course. And this story is going to be one of those times. I relied on the resource 18thCenturyPride.com to research this story, and I also double-checked a couple of their sources, but... Even so, that's still a really small sample size of potential sources for this claim, so as I always do at the end of every episode, but I'm going to remind you now just before we get into this, that you should always, always, always take what I say with a grain of salt. I'm doing my best to be accurate, but I'm also only working online on my off hours from work to try to tell these tales that recontextualize American history from a perspective I hope is more accurate, but I can make mistakes. I can screw up. And this is a particular situation where I feel that I'm working on some shaky ground. Be prepared to prove me wrong. And in fact, I welcome it. If you have stronger evidence or more conclusive evidence that implies that this story I'm about to tell is leading to an incorrect conclusion, feel free to say so in whatever comments section there is below this episode. All right, so with all that lead up, let's actually get into the story of John Adams' unique brand of homophobia, or alleged homophobia at least, the brand that caused him to disown his own son, Charles Adams. Charles Adams was one of the six children that Abigail and John Adams Jr. ever had, and he was one of the four of those children to actually survive into adulthood. Now, Adams had at least on paper, a promising start to his life. He was given the same strict but doting attention that John Quincy Adams received. 
He even participated in some of John Adams' negotiations during the American Revolution, although he didn't get to stay out in Europe as long as John Quincy Adams did. He was sent home about two years into the journey, whereas Quincy Adams stayed much later. But regardless, Charles Adams eventually went to Harvard, became a lawyer in New York City, and had, on paper at least, the perfect path to success, only for him to lose it all when his alcoholism grew out of control, his family that he was raising started to become neglected, and eventually he abandoned the practice and his family altogether to waste away in an alleyway with a bottle of booze. Eventually, John Adams Jr. chose to disown the son for basically considering him a complete moral and financial failure, which is kind of telling about the kind of father Adams is in particular before we even get to the alleged homophobia. Because that's the thing, it may not just have been that Charles Adams was an alcoholic. It may have been that Charles Adams was gay. Let's rewind the clock a bit. I said that Charles Adams received the same doting attention, that was also strict attention, that John Quincy Adams received, as well as the other famous Adams children that we know about. But Charles was also the rebel of the family. When he enrolled in Harvard, he actually caused a scandal when he and several other sorority boys, completely wasted out of their minds, chose to run naked across the field and thereby were viewed as a shameful example of the kind of men that they wanted to raise at Harvard. This prompted a letter written home to John and Abigail, who basically threatened him with everything short of physical violence if he didn't straighten up his act, which then led to him finishing Harvard without any further scandal. Now, running naked across a field may not necessarily be enough to imply that somebody is gay, but there's also Charles's life after graduation. Once he received the education necessary to become a lawyer, he chose an internship at the law practice of Alexander Hamilton, whom we've previously speculated was bi. And on top of that, one of the other clerks at Hamilton's law practice was one John Mulligan, another influential figure of the early United States who also has a history of being speculated for homosexuality. And on top of all of that, both John Mulligan and Charles Adams, when they hung out together, often hung out in the company and presence and tutelage of Baron von Steuben. Baron von Steuben is the gayest hero in American history. This is the German mercenary who, in order to escape being persecuted for homosexual activities in Prussia, basically emigrated to the United States to join the revolutionary cause, and this was only possible because Benjamin Franklin, another founding father we never get to talk about, had a reputation for being the closest thing you could get to a LGBTQIA ally during those early days of United States history. And it was Franklin who offered to let Steuben join the revolutionary cause in order to escape his troubles. So cut to post-revolution and within the early days of the United States, and Baron von Steuben is now living his best life in New York City. And again, like I was saying before, of all these people who we are speculating to be members of the LGBTQIA community, Steuben is the one we have some of the strongest evidence for homosexuality. 
So anybody who was hanging out with him regularly and in private, the way that both Adams and Mulligan were, that's Charles Adams, by the way, just to keep the narrative thread going, it's natural to also suspect that they were in a relationship with Steuben. Now, what was John Adams like during this time? The answer is not very cordial. He was actually really upset when he heard that his son Charles was hanging out with John Mulligan, whom he had also heard the rumors of. And if you want to take people who are stereotypically homophobic for religious purposes, Adams fits that stereotype pretty strongly. Part of the resources I researched in the 18th Century Pride article, like one of their resources I then checked out just to confirm, seems to imply that he was accusing the troubles of Europe at the time he wrote, which is after the presidency, were attributed to, quote, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and God finally choosing to punish them for those crimes. And I don't think I necessarily need to explain why Sodom and Gomorrah is a shorthand for those people are gay and I am glad they are being punished. Although it's not a punishment because you're not doing anything wrong if you're gay, you're just being yourself. So yeah, we have some pretty decent evidence that Adams, John Adams, that is, is playing by the classic bigot's guide to hate and bigotry. That was repetitive. But Adams was also somewhat kind of a friend with Baron von Steuben, or at least he didn't want to tick off Baron von Steuben because Baron von Steuben was way more popular with the other founding fathers than Adams was. And the last thing he needed was even more founding fathers thinking that he's a stick in a mug, stick in a mug, that he's a stick in the mud that they don't want to deal with. He tried to hide his anger when he was talking to his son Charles in front of Baron von Steuben, but the anger was there. So then we cut ahead to later in life, after Charles Adams is supposed to be running his own successful law practice. At this point, he has married a woman named Sarah and had a few kids, but the alcoholism is building. Now, there is some pretty significant likelihood that the alcoholism was through no particular reason. Sometimes people just have a predisposition to addictive tendencies, and Charles could have just been born unlucky to not be able to hold this liquor. But it's also true that if Charles was gay, that he just basically spent his entire life living in the closet. And there is numerous examples of being forced to hide a core part of your identity for long periods of time having a drastic negative effect on your mental health. So Adams, who is not allowed to be gay, might have turned to the bottle to help cope with not being able to be his true self all of the time. He had possible opportunities to be himself some of the time. Not only were there John Mulligan and Baron von Steuben, but there was also the Friendly Club which was a New York City-based literary and philosophical society that also had a reputation for being a secret gay bar. But those couldn't help him as much as he might have needed. Mulligan and Steuben eventually did move out of New York City, and in doing so, broke Charles Adams' heart, basically leaving him stranded with his wife, who, depending on just how homosexual he was, I mean, there's also always the possibility of bisexuality and pansexuality when we have these talks, but if he was fully gay, then the only two boyfriends he'd ever have access to just left. And then, of course, there's the Friendly Society I just mentioned, but I'm not kidding when I call it a gay bar. There were numerous libations that would have been served during any and all meetings, 
which means that Adam's coping mechanism is now being thrust into his face in order to hang out with the few friends he can, again, be himself with. It's only natural that the alcoholism would continue to spiral out of control until we reach the point where, in 1799, he fully abandons his family. Sarah and the children are forced to move back in, first with his sister and then later with his mother, and John Adams Jr., the president, in hearing about this, fully disowns his son in 1799. Like I said, this whole story is based off of what common assumption and speculation we can get throughout history, but there is one more thing I, I found interesting, and again, this is mostly pulled from 18thCenturyPride.com, so have your grain of salt ready, but... In the letter that John Adams wrote back to Abigail after talking to Sarah to figure out the situation with Charles, this is the letter where John Adams formally disowns Charles Adams, by the way, John Adams uses some choice words for his son. And those four words that I want to focus on are rake, buck, beast, and blood. These are words that sound like old-timey insults because they were, but old-timey insults used to mean something more severe at the time they would have been said. So let's look through those words. Blood is kind of hard to suss out. Nobody really remembers what that used to mean. Although it could be an omission from Adams that Charles Adams would be his son by blood, but only his son by blood. No other acknowledgement of Charles' existence would be respected at that time. So that's probably just part of the formal disowning process that Adams wanted to keep formal. And beast basically means the same thing it does today. Somebody's behavior is so abhorrent that you can no longer consider them human, but instead animal. Rake and buck, though, are where things get slightly more interesting. I apologize for my strong use of language here, but I'm just telling you what the word means. During the 18th century, Rake was the male equivalent for the word used against women, slut. So John Adams just called his own son a slut. I think most of the audience listening now would understand that, that what that word means effectively. So you're accusing your own son of being too sexually immoral and perverse to be worth any moral value. Buck, meanwhile, was a word used at the time to describe young men who were deemed effeminate effeminate, undisciplined, and vain, which are basically code phrases in their own to describe men that are considered too gay or too womanly to be real men. Because, you know, homophobia and transphobia and gender essentialism all knit together in one handy-dandy notebook. So those two words, Buck and Rake, have very specific meanings that Adams probably meant fully. Or at least we can assume he meant fully. Again, heavy, heavy amounts of speculation here. In disowning his son, Adams is effectively admitting that he had a gay son, or at least a son that couldn't be bound to a traditional monogamous marriage. And to Adams, he's super religious, super uptight, super willing to disown his children at a drop of a hat for not living up to his expectations anyways. It's just the perfect storm of reasons why he would not be willing to help Charles in his darkest hours. And those dark hours never lit up. By the time the presidency will be over, Charles Adams will have died, possibly of cirrhosis of the liver, 
possibly of pleurisy, which is a type of inflammation of the lungs. And Adams will do nothing. I didn't even see whether or not John Adams had a funeral for the boy or paid for the disposal of the body. He let his own child, granted a child who may have violated his view of moral principles by abandoning a family, and I don't want to, I don't want to excuse abandoning a family, but even so, your own son, and you left them on the street to die because they had problems you didn't understand. We try to create a distinction between the public president and the personal person because sometimes, sometimes, people take their job seriously enough to disassociate their duties with their personhood and make decisions that run counterintuitive to whatever weird hang-ups or personal beliefs they happen to have. Cut back to previous episode about Elbridge Jerry signing the law that gave the name gerrymandering to the United States. But there are also a lot of situations where people make decisions they think are the right decisions, not because they are actually the right decisions from a utilitarian or societal justice standpoint, but just because their personal father figure in the sky said it was a bad thing or their personal hang-ups they have about how they were raised, or weird anecdotal experiences they had, defines their worldview. And we can expect John Adams to absolutely follow a worldview that would then lead to presidential policies and maybe other public decisions that would further disenfranchise the LGBTQIA community during this time frame. Adams has all the power in the world, or at least all the power in the United States, and he could have leveraged it at any time to persecute that community that was already being heavily persecuted. To remind you the stakes that Charles Adams faced every day he woke up, most of the United States at the time would sentence people accused of sodomy, which was gay sex, with death. Even New York itself was one of those states, at least until 1796. But sodomy itself was still illegal. The punishment was just reduced to 14 years of solitude or hard labor, whichever the judge happened to feel like giving the person on that day. It's not a good life for Charles Adams, and Charles Adams could not cope with that life, and when he needed his father the most, his father turned his back on him. President John Adams Jr. is not just a passive cog in the systemic machine of homophobia in the United States. He was an active and, if I may be so bold, gleeful participant. But, with that in mind, he hasn't taken any specific steps publicly yet to reinforce his worldview onto others. He's merely letting those things happen and being happy that they happen when they do. So we can't mark him too heavily for his, I mean, what should have been a crime. And the fact that he did not interfere with the process that led to the result of the Hollingsworth v. Virginia case does mean that at this moment in time, he's at least doing something to compensate civil rights, because there is no real one-to-one to civil rights. You should have them all, and any lack of access to one effectively means lack of access to all. But... You know, we take what we can get here on this comparison-based podcast. Hollingsworth v. Virginia, by limiting presidential power, is a critical moment for civil rights. So, I'm 
maybe being too nice to Adams, and frankly, I'm probably being too nice to every president on this podcast, but I'm going to say that Hollingsworth v. Virginia, the public stance that affects millions of people, helps counteract the absolute horrific treatment he gave to Charles Adams, who was one person. Therefore, I think I can give John Adams Jr. a zero for civil rights this year. And I don't want to just brush off and move off to the next thing without acknowledging the gravity of what we just discussed. Adams was a monster. Even in just this one thing, that's all it takes to be a monster. And it's always a tough call to hold somebody accountable for the personal thing while also trying to rate them for the public thing, especially in situations where you think, and this is me just talking about myself, in situations where I think, there was a divergence between those two modalities. But that's why I always encourage you to do your own research, double-check my facts, and come to your own conclusions, regardless of what I say on this podcast, because maybe Adams deserves worse than what he got. And I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong to think that. You're probably right to think that. Nonetheless, we do have the rest of the presidency to talk about for this year. The next metric we have to judge Adams on is his integrity as president. Weird thing to say after talking about homophobia very extensively, but here we go. When we talk about integrity as president, the key phrase that we need to discuss is as president. Again, talking about that personal v. professional modality that we're kind of basing this podcast on somewhat, you know, maybe unfairly. We're not really interested in whether these were people with personal integrity. Because, one, we just saw how Adams had absolutely no integrity as a father. And two, there are instances where people with no personal integrity, for fear of losing their job or having a bad reputation, will still choose to have a public integrity they pursue. And on the reverse of that, there are situations where having unwavering integrity at least in the sense of always sticking to your guns and never second-guessing yourself and always doing what you think is the right thing, there are going to be times in history where that's actually a really terrible idea that gets a lot of people hurt. You know, we're more interested in the professional integrity. And the way we define that here is whether or not John Adams, as president, is choosing to do the right thing as president. Is he using his power to enforce unfair rules and laws? Is he using his power to enforce fair rules and laws that he disagrees with? Is he not using his power to enforce the law? And are all those same questions applicable to the people he hires or he manages? Well, this is gonna kind of be another weird one to discuss for John Adams. Because on one hand, he really screwed up for integrity, but on the other hand, it kind of wasn't his fault. So let's recap going all the way back to the start of the year, March 4th, 1797. Adams is sworn in as president by the current Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Oliver Ellsworth. And this is the first time in American history where the peaceful transition of power has occurred. One president has stopped being president, and a second person is now president. And you have a lot of tough calls because even though his popularity took a nosedive during the last few years of the presidency, there were still a lot of people who were really inspired by and proud of the accomplishments of the first president of the United States, George Washington. And there's always this risk that the new guy, even if they're the member of the same party, quote-unquote, 
that Washington was alleged to belong to, but technically didn't. There's always the risk that this new guy will come and screw everything up by undoing all the good work. And that was definitely a fear that Adams had. He thought, especially with the ever-looming threat of the Democrat Republicans, aka the Jeffersonian Republicans, that he could lose a lot of trust from a lot of people he really needed to trust him if he tried to change the status quo too much. So he overcompensated and essentially just kept all the same people in office that Washington did. This meant he effectively had the exact same presidential cabinet that George Washington ended his presidency with. So this was the Secretary of State, Timothy Pickering, the Secretary of the Treasury, Oliver Wolcott Jr., the Secretary of War, James McHenry, and the Attorney General, Charles Lee. On paper, this seems like a very wise decision, and Adams, being the consummate bureaucrat, was all about that paper. All of these men had months to one year of experience within the presidential cabinet, and Pickering and Wolcott specifically had several years under their belts at this point. So in terms of people you want on your side because they know how to do stuff and know how the other guy that you're trying to model yourself after did stuff, these are the right guys to pick. But the problem was that these people were part of a pretty significant, at least as far as real-life conspiracies go, a pretty significant conspiracy where they were more interested in following the Federalist Party line than they were following the dictums and ideas of the President of the United States. You know, their boss. And when I say party line for the Federalists, what I really mean is the whims and whimsies of one Alexander Hamilton. We made a big deal last season about how awesome and cool Alexander Hamilton was because when he was Secretary of the Treasury, he did a lot of pretty important stuff that helped the country survive its first few years of infancy. But then he became a paranoid whack job who thought that all of his political opponents were going to destroy the nation and that it was more important to keep rights out of their hands than to do whatever made the most sense to the actual person who's supposed to be running the presidency. So effectively, Hamilton had a huge influence on the party. The thing to remember about conspiracy theories like this is that influence is just that influence, right? Like, at any point in time, Pickering, Wolcott, and McHenry, the three cabinet members who were most aligned with Alexander Hamilton, could have chosen to not listen to him, and probably got away with it. But they chose to listen to him because influence can be strong, and they liked Hamilton. I mean, most of them worked with the guy for a while. So Pickering, Wolcott, and McHenry would basically write letters detailing, in perhaps way too much detail, just what John Adams was doing or thinking about doing, and Hamilton would write back with his own personal advice on the matter. And then those three members of the cabinet would just repeat that advice right back to Adams as if it was their own legitimate, totally not trying to play politics and just do the right thing kind of advice. And Adams, of course, was the rogue Federalist who wanted to do what he thought the right thing was, which probably wasn't the actual right thing, but it also wasn't just do what the Federalists say. Adams accidentally created a conspiracy in his own house that was specifically designed to undermine his own effectiveness as president, and he was none the wiser. Like, he had an idea that Hamilton had a huge influence on the party, and he assumed that Hamilton's, you know, public writings were influencing some of the decisions of Pickering, Wolcott, and McHenry, 
but he would not be aware until the end of his presidency that they were literally, like, going up to Hamilton being like, Hey, yeah, boss, what do you want us to do, boss? You want us to break his legs, boss? And Hamilton was like, yeah, get him, boys, yeah. That was a terrible, terrible mob boss accent, but I hope you know what I mean. That's not a great start for the integrity of the Adams presidency, but we are only talking about three of the four people I mentioned. Luckily for Adams, Charles Lee was the only member of the cabinet to actually have his best interests at heart and not just play Federalist Party lines. Sure, Lee was also a Federalist, at least at the time, but Lee wasn't interested in behaving like a party-focused politician. He just wanted to be an effective attorney general, and he gave his honest, actually his own opinions when Adams asked for them. So, you know, at least John Adams had one friend in his corner. So we obviously cannot reward Adams for integrity because this was a doozy of a conspiracy that he created without meaning to. But we also can't punish him because he didn't mean to. He had no idea just how much his presidency was being undermined out from under him. That's what undermine literally means. You don't have to explain undermine means out from under. Regardless, we can't really blame Adams for this. Like, um, going back to Charles Adams, it would be like if I was trying to blame John Adams Jr. for disowning Charles Adams just for the alcoholism. Nobody knew what addiction was at that point, or at least they didn't have the in-depth medical understanding we have today. It would be somewhat disingenuous of me to think that John Adams should have taken a higher road when, for all purposes of that time, John Adams may not have never been aware that there was a higher road. And that's kind of the same thing here. John Adams didn't know about the conspiracy, therefore John Adams cannot be considered part of the conspiracy, only its victim. You know, sometimes we might end up punishing presidents for, like, not seeing through obvious traps, but this was not an obvious trap, and I don't think it's fair to punish Adams for it. So, again, I feel like we have another wash. I think I'm just giving John Adams Jr. a zero this year. And thus concludes the presidency of John Adams' first year, where we can now tally up the score, is what I would be saying if we didn't have one more thing to talk about, which was the bonus point for bipartisanship. And there isn't one this year. So just in case you're hearing about this for the first time because you decided to start with the Adams presidency for this podcast, we like to give out a bonus point for bipartisanship as part of the presidential score for each year. Now, the reason that this is a bonus point rather than a main metric we like to judge on is because sometimes bipartisanship is not an inherently good thing. There are situations where playing partisan lines might actually be the better thing for the nation. But in general, being bipartisan means being somebody who can compromise and create a solution that works for the vast majority of people, and usually that is a good thing. But sadly, we have no such bipartisan victories to announce for John Adams at this time. We can't quite punish him and take a point away because John Adams was trying to be bipartisan, at least in his own mind. The whole reason that Elbridge Jerry, back during the previous episode, was allowed to go negotiate with France, and therefore the only reason we ever had even a glimmer of hope that we could negotiate with France was because John Adams refused to let something as simple as Elbridge Jerry being too close to a Democrat politician to stop him from being an effective politician. So that's definitely a bipartisan impulse, and a good one at that. We would like to see nurtured in John Adams. 
Sadly, John Adams' entire presidency is going to be defined by this perpetual pettiness of a conflict between the Federalists trying to hold on to power with their dying hands while the Democrat-Republicans do everything to take that power away from them, and John Adams by stocking his entire cabinet with Federalists, by aligning with the Federalists as much as possible in order to get his own personal agendas out, with the exception of Jerry and maybe a couple other individual cases, Adams really is playing party lines as much as he claims to hate playing party lines. And again, we also have that whole conspiracy thing going on. We may not necessarily punish Adams for unwittingly summoning Alexander Hamilton to be the secret shadow president, which is a joke. I, I, I guys don't believe conspiracies are invincible things. But effectively, that just only heightened the amount of party line thinking that his cabinet would pursue. And therefore, a lot of other people working for the federal government or alongside the federal government or even within Congress trying to get Federalist stuff approved, it just became a whole mess because he welcomed the snake into, not the snake, it'd be a fox, he welcomed the fox into the henhouse. No points. Nobody gets points for bipartisanship, but that also means no points are being taken away. And now we can actually score Adams on his first year as President of the United States. How well did he do? Well, the entire hot mess that was the repercussions of the Panic of 1796 and 1797 earned John Adams a zero for economics. The XYZ affair, even if it's not called that at this time, earned John Adams a negative one for diplomacy. The fact that John Adams was able to oversee the completion of the first few ships of the United States Navy gives him a war score of plus two. And then every score we talked about this episode, civil rights, integrity, and bipartisanship, were all big fat zeros. This leaves us with a total of plus one. Now I want to be clear. I know that sounds low, but this score, this scale that we judge on, hypothetically can go from negative 15 to positive 15. So a positive one is actually pretty decent. But ultimately, when we compare it to both the first year of the Washington presidency and the total presidency score of positive 2.5 Washington got, we can safely say that the first year of John Adams Jr. is not better than Washington. Alright, so that was a bit of a heavier episode, so I think it's only fair that we cool off with some interesting history facts. On August 3rd, Geoffrey Amherst, the so-called conqueror of Quebec, dies at the age of 80, already off to a fun start, I suppose. Then on August 30th, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, or as she is more famously known, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, is born. On October 17th, the War of the First Coalition, which was basically France versus the entire world, and the main part of this phase of the French Revolutionary War, as we've talked about thus far, is finally over. The Treaty of Campo Fiormo is signed. Then we jump ahead to December 1st, where Oliver Wolcott Sr., a founding father of the United States and the biological father of Treasury Secretary Oliver Wolcott Jr., dies at the age of 71. On December 4th, George Tapo I, who is the first king of Tonga, is born. On January 4th, Constantine Hungerli enters Bucharest to assume his role as Prince of Wallachia. 
and on February 10th, the Pope is taken captive by the French, thereby removing the papacy from political power in the former papal states. Those papal states themselves will be conquered and converted into the Roman Republic one month later, on March 7th. That's it for this episode. My fellow Americans, thank you so much for listening to Better Than Washington. My name is Duncan, and I will see you all next time. Better Than Washington uses the song Americana by Mr. Smith under a fair use attribution license. You can find that song and the other works of Mr. Smith at the Free Music Archives, freemusicarchives.org. If you want to support the podcast, please give it a like and leave as many stars as you can on a review on whichever podcast platform you're using right now. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Van Washington with a capital T and a capital W, all one word. If you really like the podcast, you can also sign up to give monthly donations at anchor.fm slash better hyphen than hyphen Washington. Also, if you want to fact check me, I do my preliminary research on Wikipedia and then use resources I can find online through Google search to corroborate select claims. For this particular episode, everything I used either came from 18thCenturyPride.com or were some of the resources used on that very same 18th Century Pride article. A couple of the resources that I double-checked to confirm included a shorter article about all of the Adams children, including the life of Charles, which does actually include the claims of both alcohol abuse and his potential homosexuality. This article was on PBS. And I also looked at a letter that was written between John Adams and Benjamin Rush. And this letter is the one with that line about Sodom and Gomorrah, so I basically treated this letter as the mask-off moment for John Adams proving himself to be a homophobic weirdo. That article is at founders.archives.gov. These links will be in the show notes below, so please feel free to click those links and read these items for yourself. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you again for listening. I'm probably not going to get the next episode out for another month, so until then, have a great time.